The Buddhism and Breath Summit took place online in 2021, with a group of researchers exploring Buddhist practices of working with the breath, or the winds, of the body. The event was co-hosted by me, Francis Garrett, and Pierce Salguero, and it was co-sponsored by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto and Jivaka.net. The following talk is entitled, Blurry Boundaries Between Breath, Qi, and Qi, and Buddhism, Agency for a Contemporary Chinese-American Religious Healer. And it's a conversation between Pierce Salguero and Dr. Kin Chung, who's a scholar of Buddhist meditation and healing, practical implications of Buddhist ethics, and Buddhist institutions' involvement in China's stock market. You can watch the video of this talk and find other resources from the Buddhism and Breath Summit at jivaka.net. That's J-I-V-A-K-A, jivaka.net, N-E-T. So welcome to another presentation in the Buddhism and Breath Summit. This is an online event that explores Buddhist practices of working with the breath and with bodily winds. Uh, I'm Pierce Salguero, one of the hosts of the uh, event. And um, my guest today is my very good friend, Kin. Kin, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody and, and uh, yeah, tell us what you do. All right. Hello, Piers. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Ken Chung, and I am assistant professor at Moravian College, soon to be Moravian University, probably when this presentation gets uploaded. And there I'm in the global religions department and I research contemporary Buddhism. I work on Buddhism and science, Buddhism and economics, and also Buddhism, medicine and health and healing. So that's a little bit about my interests. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we share a lot of interests in terms of Buddhism and medicine and healing and, and so forth. Um, and Ken, uh, I don't even remember when it, when it was off the top of my head, but we, um, we kind of came together for a collaborative project um, when I was creating an anthology of um, texts on Buddhism and medicine. And uh, we interviewed, you helped me um, and we together interviewed um, a very interesting practitioner of uh, Buddhist-inspired and Buddhist-influenced medicine in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, maybe you want to you want to let us know who that was and kind of a little bit of background about uh, yeah about so him. So that, uh, that was two thousand that was two thousand fifteen, and we did the interview in October, and. What's most interesting is I never thought of this as a research project that I would pursue. Um, we were just talking and I told you that it's my father who does this religious healing with Qigong, with Reiki, and also Buddhist chants and um, spells. So we got to talking and you uh, suggested that we interview him as part of that project. I was happy to do so. And now it's really developed into a research uh, direction for me. Yeah, so we, we we published together the um, transcript or, or transcript of most of that interview, and now you've done. Um, I mean, you have several publications in the works about him and his practice, and the, sort of the context of uh, Chinese American um, religious healing in, in 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 New York. So, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your your research and um, what directions you're going in? Sure. So, uh, my father, Sen Ken Chung. Let me share an image just so. Uh, the viewers can see what 
we're talking about. Uh, Pierce, do you see the image up on your screen? Yes, I do. All right. So I'm going to share later more close up um, zoom in images to see more in detail, but you get a kind of sense of, of what's going on. So my father is in most of these images and his name is Sam Ken Chung. He is a, a community healer for a Chinese American, actually Asian American immigrant community in the New York City area. Uh, he started working, learning self-cultivation practices when he was really young in, in Southern China and Guangzhou. He learned martial arts and he picked up healing practices because of his own ailments, stomach ailments growing up. When he moved to the United States along with my mother and myself, he started learning how to use electric acupuncture machines, how to make his own um, herbal liniments. Uh, he would pick moxa from neighborhood parks to burn for, to use for moxibustion. He does cupping. Uh, he's learned Qigong from an uncle about, from, of my uncle. And so he's learned from a family member. And since uh, 2012, I call him a community healer because he started practicing in the local park. And that's where he got his first uh, patient and student. And that, that uh, community built around that first patient. So he's, he's really been doing this for almost 10 years now. And I've seen him change over that time. And so that, that's kind of a brief overview of who he is and who his community is. Yeah. I, I know one of the things that you're working on, uh, one of the publications you're working on is talking a little bit about the methodology of doing ethnographic research on a family member um, and, and some of the kind of, I don't know, potentially awkward or potentially maybe conflicts of interest. I don't know if you want to you wanna say anything about that as well. Thanks for asking that question. So I have a slide that I show elsewhere that I guess I'll make this bigger for audience to see. So when, when I do this project, this was uh, my parents and I at Drake University 2018, where I had, we gave an academic presentation about his healing practice. And I had to explain that when I write about my father, I cannot write myself out it just wouldn't make sense. And so there are some things that I reflect upon what, what it means in terms of methodology. Uh, what, what I think about now is that I, I use critical autoethnography. And this is, this is important because this is a way for the ethnographer to pay attention to the power imbalance in terms of how scholarship is being created uh, when scholars work with their research subjects. Uh, they wanna make sure they pre present their research subjects uh, without perpetuating power imbalances and, and kind of to elevate their uh, research subjects voice. Um, so these are the things that I'm paying attention to. Uh, we mentioned earlier our co-author publication uh, that, that uh, I was interpreting the questions that Pierce, you asked my father. And so just when we were going over the recording and I was transcribing what I've spoken to you, I had to change some of the words because they were not capturing my father's voice. I ha had to consciously retranslate to make sure I uh, kept his voice and it wasn't kind of me speaking to you as an academic colleague. Yeah, and, and also it's worth 
mentioning that you you know I, I don't speak Cantonese, so you were you were translating both directions, so that that uh, got pretty complex, I'm sure. Um, so so maybe you can you can help us to understand um, you know given the the theme of the Buddhism and Breath Summit is about these um, you know working with the breath or bodily winds and um, you know in the East Asian context we are very much wanting to th- think about the concept of chi as fitting into this uh, um, fitting into this project as well and I, I know that you you mentioned a sort of a range of different practices that your father's involved in both religious, but well, ones that we might think of on first blush as being religious and others that we might think of as being medical. And I think one of the strengths of your research, one of my interests too, is sort of like the blurry categories where religion and medicine um, merge together. And it seems to me like chi is right at the center of the blurring of those categories in your in your um, father's work. And so maybe you can help us to um, understand what, you know, what she is and how it kind of plays a role um, in his, in his healing practice. Sure. So uh, she in the Mandarin pronunciation spelled QI in the pinyin romanization. Sometimes you'll see it spelled C-H-I. That's the older way Giles. And in Japanese, it's spelled K-I, but it's the same word. And we can translate that as breath. We can translate that as air. Um, we could also think of it as a cycle, physical energy, life energy. And so uh, chi as is not just one thing. And, and I, I, I want to suggest that asking about, thinking about chi is, is such a big and important question to understand East Asian, not just medicine, but also culture in general. I, I think it's as abstract and as important as asking like, what is justice? What is love? Uh, it's just such a big, rich uh, question to to investigate. So, in terms of blurring boundaries and, and categories, uh, as a scholar, I started out just using theoretical tools to divide up the world, and it, it helped me process information. But then, once you start studying uh, people more closely and agents on the ground, and see that they they disrupt and move across these scholarly categories that academics creates to help them in their theoretical approach to the material. So I want to share a image of my father's altar here in the basement, just to show you what it means to blur uh, boundaries. So he, he uses Qigong. This is his altar. Uh, he also uses uh, Buddhist chants and Buddhist spells. Um, if you notice on the both sides of the altar, there's a cup with some writing on it. That is a great compassion mantra, a great compassion dharani. And so the idea is to have some water uh, placed in that cup and the spell that is inscribed on, on, the, on the outside uh, infuses the water with healing uh, healing properties. Um, so there are incense that you see in the middle that he lights for, for deities, for Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You see some flowers, you see some, some beads, prayer beads, mala beads. I think you'll see some Devanagari. You'll see some uh, pamphlets from Chinese temples, Korean temples, Japanese temples. And if you, some of viewers might recognize the large painting in the background is of the seven medicine Buddhas 
in the Donghuang caves. So he uses a lot of different things, and it's it's hard to say that it's only Buddhist or only Qigong or only Reiki or even only Chinese medical arts. And so what what I what I see Breath doing, uh, Qi doing, is kind of uh, exemplifies how he how he crosses boundaries. He talks a lot about uh, Chan Tai Chi. So it's like Chan Buddhist Chan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism combined with um, Tai Chi uh, self-cultivation martial arts. Uh, another way that it blurs boundaries um, is the idea of breath being something that is involuntary, that every minute, every few seconds, we are breathing involuntarily until I mentioned it to you, then you might start thinking unconsciously about your breath. So it's most, for the most part unconscious, but at the same time, it's something that we can um, control consciously if we direct our attention towards it. And, and breath work, qigong, um, that's one way to translate qigong, um, is to regulate the breath. And so uh, I, I see this as a very interesting question that I have about his practice, because uh, the breath stands between the voluntary and involuntary. It, it's between um, different uh, nervous systems. And so that's the conduit. And I think that is one important part in terms of how he accesses his healing. Um, I, I mentioned um, before our meeting to Pierce that I wanted to discuss a little bit about agency. I think that's an interesting question about uh, my father's healing. And this came from a question that Pierce asked my father in 2015. And that question was, um, does he see himself being a conduit of healing that the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas is kind of perhaps using him as an instrument? Or does he see himself as the agent of healing, as, as the healer? And I remember very clearly when we were doing the interview and I asked him this, uh, he, he answered both. And so when I heard that answer, I rephrased my question. You know, I, I thought maybe I just didn't say it clearly. He didn't understand me. And then so I rephrased it in a different way. And he also said both. And I remember feeling frustrated. And when I was listening to the recording afterwards, I, I felt frustrated again. And it was that moment listening to recording uh, removed from, from the interview that I, I realized that I, I, I was probably imposing a researcher uh, category onto my father that, that he didn't live or that he didn't think was important. And that seems to me to be a, a distinction between the descriptive and the prescriptive. And, and just listening to recording, it made me realize he cared about both possibilities for healing because he's used to teaching his students and his patients and his relatives and his friends. And so he cares about the possibilities and how to go about healing and less so describing exactly where his practice fits along uh, scholarly categories. So uh, that's what I have for now. Any, any follow-ups to that, Pierce? No, I guess I, I guess um, I would just ask one more question um, <clears throat> in the spirit of kind of um, mixing scholarship with experience and the sort of category blurring that we're doing here um, more generally. I'm, I'm wondering if um, 
if you've ever experienced chi, I mean, growing up with your father, you must have heard about this concept, you know, from from very young. And I'm wondering if if you would share with us, you know, maybe a more kind of personal um, experience or or personal kind of phenomenology of chi, if that's something that you would you would uh, feel comfortable doing. I do. Thank you for asking. So I'm going to share an image of my my father practicing qigong on uh, a patient of his. And so uh, you see his hand moving. Um, so he's moving his hands. And I, I learned this from my father who learned it from my uncle. And so the three of us ha have practiced together. And my father learned this when he was in his 40s, so pretty late in his life. And this was during high school. And I remember that that night, I remember it's been a few months that I've already been watching him practice this in the evenings. And I was a little curious and he knew that. And so um, out, of, out of the blue one night, he said, hey, Ken, do you want to um, do you want to practice this? Do you want to try this? Try this out. And I said, sure. And so after maybe five to 10, 15 minutes of practice, I was moving my hands um, in, in different motions, moving my shoulders, stretching, but also using my mind to consciously direct the breath energy, the life energy. So that's why we call it chi. That's why we call it chi social, uh, psychophysical energy. And at one point, I was moving my hands. And when I was going in this kind of circular motion without touching my fingertips, it was the first time ever where I felt the sensation of tea. And that sensation I would describe as a change in temperature, a little bit of warm, sometimes it's cooling. But the, the more, more interesting thing is I would describe it as a magnetic push against my palms. I feel like there's a, there's a ball of air in between my palms and I'm manipulating it when I rub it like this or when I... Uh, feel it expand and contract. And so this was in high school and it just ruptured my worldview. It just, I could not uh, do anything but laugh. That was my experience. It was just, uh, that's how I could um, make sense of what happened. Or maybe I should say I couldn't make sense of what happened. But, but uh, uh, there were questions that were that I raised, you know, was this just a one-time thing? Was this something that I, I, I um, just uh, really wanted to believe and imagine myself experiencing it? How do I know this is uh, reproducible? And of course, I've tried it in different environments at, at different times, including at different places, like uh, in an airplane um, at a higher elevation. So, so I've come to corroborate this experience over time, and this is repeatable. And it's also corroborated with my father and my uncle and other people that practice Qigong. However, uh, as a high schooler, I was really excited to uh, teach everyone I knew about Qigong. And, and when I taught my friends who were who trusted me and eager to learn, and they told me that they did not experience Qi the same way I experienced, it, it really uh, dampened my enthusiasm about what it means for that practice to change my worldview because it was not it was not explainable for my 17 year old self um, how, how can I feel magnets pushing against my arm by just moving it about um, um, 
the fact that my friends didn't feel the same way uh, really kind of gave me doubt in terms of how I can trust or how any of us can really trust our senses and experience. So I'll stop here. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks Ken, so much for, um, you know, talking to us about your research and about your about your dad, also about your own experience, really. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a great contribution um, to the summit. And um, uh, you're going to include some supplementary materials and readings and so forth for people who want to follow up and get more information about chi uh, and about um, uh, East Asian uh, health and healing practices related to chi. And so, yeah, um, I, I don't know if you have any, any parting comments or final final words to say, but, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for, for sharing. Um, I'm not, nothing really comes to mind right now. I guess, um, I'm looking over some of the publications I have in progress. Um, and I'm thinking about, um, just his, his examples of healing. Uh, one of the things that come to mind, I guess I'll share this near the end, which is, um, I'm writing a book chapter, uh, that, that's contributing to an edited volume on the philosophy of, of religion. And there I'm, I'm talking about his examples of healing success as uh, natural miracles. And though, and I do this because not because he or his students or patients refer to those success as miracles, but because a colleague of mine um, learned about my father and, and framed it as such. And so I'll give you an example. His first student in 2012 had a golf ball sized tumor on the back of her neck that bothered her for decades. And it was just too close to the nerves to operate that the doctor says um, it's just not worth the risk. So she's been living with this condition for decades. And then she's been seeking different ways to treat her and herself, including different Qigong practices. And after two weeks of learning Qigong and, and getting treatment from my father, her tumor went away and never returned. And so, so she's really kind of her, she's really his biggest advocate and biggest publicist. Um, most of his students and patients are socially connected to her in some way. And, uh, and she does use the word miracle to describe his healing, but it's the Chinese words for it. And, and, and that chapter, I say that in the Chinese religious context, in the Chinese worldview, that miracle is not something unnatural or supernatural. It's part of the uh, natural world in that anyone can pick up this uh, self-cultivation practice and heal themselves and heal other people. And that, that's what my father wants to do. He wants to teach students to learn to heal themselves. And uh, I guess I'll end there and, and also say uh, thank you, Pierce, for inviting me uh, to talk about this project.